amen. What an appropriate response to the honor of reading God's word uh, and even a humbling reminder of the weight of preaching God's word. So, sister, thank you for reading the scriptures so faithfully and so powerfully by the help of the Spirit. Speaking of power, music is powerful. I was reminded this week um, how powerful music could be. A number of ways, a number of conversations that kind of happened. First, uh, Spears, Pastor Craig's 13-year-old son, uh, had an end-of-year uh, kind of performance at his school, and he sang, and I sat there watching him, and, and a few emotions went through me first. I was like, oh, snap, this brother can sing. <laughs> so I was caught off guard by the power with which uh, he was singing and the, and the gifting God has given to him. But I was also moved almost to tears, and I'm like, wait a minute, I can't, like, I can't cry right now, but I want to cry. It's not the lyrics of the song per se, but it's just watching him take the risk give it all he had and sing uh, in front of people. And it was just powerful. Songs are powerful. It reminds me that I could think about my life and, and there are songs to the soundtrack of my life that marked me and shaped me and tapped into an emotional experience I was going through at a particular moment. I remember the song. Now, I'm not commending these songs. I'm just telling history, all right? This is not a commendation. Uh, some of it might be a confession even. Uh, but I, I do want to take you to some of the songs that I remember so Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony when I was in high school. Um, so there was a friend of mine from Cleveland. Bone Thugs and Harmony is from Cleveland. And they sang this song, Cross, Crossroads, about a, a friend who died. Lewis, my friend, was from Cleveland, long loved Bone Thugs and Harmony, but then he got hit by a car and killed our freshman year of high school. And I remember that song as I would listen to it and remember him singing it. I would think about him and think, like, and that song is just forever connected to the memory of my friend Lewis and that death. I think about the song, again, not a commendation, but I'll Be Missing You by P. Diddy and Faith Evans. <laughs> My best friend's dad died shortly after Lewis did. I remember us riding in the car back from being with his family as he was grieving the surprise death of his father. And that song being on and just tears streaming down our faces, we thought about the finality of life. Again, another song associated with me emotionally in that way, death. Uh, the, the song Gone by NSYNC, a funny song. It, it's not connected to death. But a friend of mine, when I was, I was coaching high school football, I was a sophomore in college, and a quarterback I was closest with died in a car wreck, and he had re, uh, sang all the time. He had an incredible voice, and he loved all the NSYNC songs, and particularly him singing. I remember him at football practice singing the song Gone as he walked around. So these songs can tap into these emotional experiences. I remember being an early father, a young father, and my daughter Eden, about 18 months old, saying, Daddy, I want to hear Our God. Our God is greater. She wanted to sing it. I remember those memories as a father. Music has power, even not just emotional, sentimental power that connects to memories, but even power for worship. Music uniquely taps into our affections and our emotions such that it stirs us to exalt and to sing praise. Charlie was telling me this week that he loved the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that it had particular uh, fond memories for him and what God had done, singing in response to God that great hymn. I remember in college, the song Be Near and the song Psalm 145 by Shane and Shane and how when I first started walking with God, these songs captured the longings of my heart and the cries of my heart. The early days of marriage and ministry, I remember singing in Christ alone, Bless the Lord by Ty Tribbett. And then Don't Waste Your Life, the little Christian hip-hop in there by Lecrae. <laughs> I remember these songs and these seasons of life and what God was doing and how I responded in prayer and crying out to him. At Imago Day Church in Raleigh, we're there. I remember singing, Jesus, I need you, with tears streaming down my face at a worship service. It's cornerstone beneath the waters. At Freedom Church, as I pastored there, my first pastorate, I remember the joy of singing the song, Defender. 
the hymn, Rock of Ages, the hymn, It Is Well, and the new song, Back Then, All the Poor and Powerless. I remember Jonathan's first Sunday with us at Kaiser when he sang, Come Thou Fount, and how many dreams were captured in that moment. I remember being at Eugene Street, singing the anthem on Easter Sunday morning, watching the kids enjoy Our God Reigns and In Jesus' Name, and even there singing It Is Well together. Remember during the season of homelessness as a church and then COVID, singing promises as we sang this morning and even living hope. And then I remember our late brother Tim who passed away recently telling me and Jonathan we got to sing Joy of the Lord and more recently introducing and singing and loving that song. Music has power to tap into our emotions and our affections and turn to worship. And this is true even in Scripture. So we see Barak and Deborah Sing for joy after Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera in Judges chapter 5. David sings after being delivered from his enemies in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22. So, I mean, the book of Psalms is a psalm book of the church, but so many of those psalms are psalms celebrating the victory God has provided. When Israel comes back from exile, they sing. When Jesus is born, Mary, Zechariah, Simon, and all the angels sing because of his birth. Jesus and his disciples sing a hymn together. The book of John, Romans, Colossians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Hebrews all contain hymns. The book of Revelation is full of singing. From beginning to end, the Bible is saturated with the songs of the redeemed. Being saved by God, particularly the God of the universe, causes great emotion and affection in our hearts that's appropriately expressed and responded to in songs of praise to our great God. Last week, we saw God's deliverance of Israel, getting Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and then uh, bringing forth his justice and destruction on Egypt. And that was, that was prose. It was history. It was story. We now come to Exodus chapter 15, and it's poetry. There's a response. So the people of God get saved, and then they have to sing. And this is appropriate. Seeing what God has done in his love and his kindness and moving to save Uh, His people lead you to say, I want to respond in song. I want to sing. I want poetry, not just prose. I want want words put together that express the affections and emotions of our great God. Today we see them respond by singing. They declared the Lord's grace and mercy. They sing forth his praises. The redeemed of the Lord rejoice. Saved people sing. That's what we do (laughs) because we've been saved and so we must sing. And as those of us on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, especially, we must sing. Paul even gives an imperative, commands that we sing, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Today we study the song by the sea, as many people have called it, and learn at least four reasons why or how we should sing. If you want a title this morning, it's an exhortation. We should sing. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, help us as we jump into your word. May we rightly learn theologically what you're teaching about yourself and revealing about yourself. But may our learning theologically turn into doxology, to praise, to song, to worship for your great goodness and kindness. Prevent us from just being cold, academic heads full of theology with cold, dead hearts not responding. 
but also forgive us and pre- prevent us, protect us from having all kinds of emotion and shouts that aren't connected to right theology. Help us, God, to believe and know you as you've revealed yourself and to respond in worship by the power of the Spirit for your great glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three reasons to sing, and then a a specific exhortation of how we would sing. Reason number one, we sing to exalt his victory. We sing to exalt his victory. Look again at Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. We must sing to exalt his victory. Notice Moses begins by saying, we must sing. Why? Why, Moses? For he has triumphed gloriously. (laughs) That's why we got to sing, because he's triumphed gloriously. This ain't been any old triumph. (laughs) This has been a glorious triumph. This has been an incredible work. He did it. He fought for Israel. He fought against Egypt. He parted the Red Seas. He delivered his people. He demonstrated his power and his love and his covenant faithfulness, but also his justice and his wrath against those who reject him. Notice Moses doesn't mention anything about his role in the delivery. Now, he's uniquely the one God chose to use. So it was his arm that held up the staff and the Lord used to part the Red Sea. But when you're singing in response to God, you're not thinking about yourself and what you did in this this whole process. You're thinking of what he did. Now, it has something to say to you and you're going to respond, but the primary focus is we're exalting the work of God. We're singing praise because he has saved us. He has done it. He has fought for us. He has delivered us. He has redeemed us. He's purchased us. He set us free. He's the one who's done this work. We sing to exalt his work, not our work. We celebrate him and what he's done, not us and what we've done. We sing theocentric songs, God-centered songs. Not anthropocentric, man-centered songs. We sing songs that highlight God as hero. Us as recipient of his heroic acts. He's the one being celebrated. His great work. He is our strength, our song, our salvation, our God. We will praise him. We will exalt him. Also, I want you to think about this in light of Christ and of being Christians. Now, this is true for Israel. So they've been set free. They've been delivered. Then they sang. But for us, again, on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ... Jesus in John 17, 4, he prays. And he prays to his father, the high priestly prayer. And he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Having accomplished, past tense. (laughs) It's done. It's finished. Why do y'all think I over and over and over bring up this Greek word, tetelestai? (laughs) Because I want you to believe and rest in the fact that the work is finished. That just before he died, he said, it's finished, it's accomplished, it's done. I've done everything necessary to set you free from your sin and death, from Satan. There's nothing you need to worry about because Christ says, it's finished, it's done. I have glorified God, I've accomplished all of the work. It is finished. When we sing praises, we sing praises celebrating the finished work of God in Christ. Not our work. We don't say, yo, you died on the cross for my sins and I've been a good person. Mm, That's evil. No, no, no. You died on the cross for my sins. You set me free. You parted the seas. You delivered me. You saved me. We exalt God's work. I was in the hospital this week visiting Gretel. 
who, who just found out she's got cancer in her, in her spine and her liver and uh, 10 spots on her brain and had to have uh, surgery yesterday, brain surgery. We've heard she recovered uh, and is doing well from that surgery. But I was having a conversation with her, I believe this was on Tuesday, and we were talking, and she, and she told me, and, and she had brought this up in her pastoral interview when she joined our church, that she really struggled with assurance, wondering if she really was a Christian. Was she really saved? And she said, that's always been an issue. She said, Clint, the other day I was sitting in the hospital, and she said, I've had my moments. So she's got a great sense of humor, so there's lots of jokes, and even the posts online have been hilarious. But that's not her ignoring the, the real situation. She's very sober. She said, I've had my moments where I've just wept and cried. But here's what I realized. I realized I'm crying because I fear the rest of my life on earth. I don't fear death. I fear the rest of my life on earth. She's like, I've been through breast cancer. I know the radiation. I know the chemo. I know the pain that's coming. That's what I'm afraid of. But I realized I have no more assurance issues. I'm not afraid of death. So she's sitting in the hospital for the first time facing death, realizing I'm not afraid to die anymore. I know that my God has saved me. I know the work is finished. And we praise God and exalt God because it is done. It is finished. But also notice, just because it's theocentric and God-centered doesn't mean it's not personal. So again, notice where Moses goes on. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He is my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. Personal response is a part of this exalting God work in singing. So we're exalting his work, but we must respond to it. So it's not like we're afraid to talk about us in the conversation. We just want to talk about us rightly. I'm the recipient of the hero's work. I'm not the hero. He's the hero, but the hero saved me. He's my salvation. It's not just he saved me. He is my salvation. He he saved me from sin and death that I might have him. And so we celebrate this is incredibly personal. Now, sometimes I think people, especially those who love theology, let me give you a warning. Those who love robust doctrine and theology can complain about newer music songs. Ah, There's too many personal pronouns, too repetitive. And I suppose there is a danger there, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Know that the Bible is using personal pronouns in response. Know that I had you read a psalm last week that was incredibly repetitive. You repeated the same phrase back to me over and over and over the whole psalm. So you must respond so that we ought to respond to this saving work of God personally. You must believe this is my God. He's not just the God, he's my God. (laughs) He doesn't just save generally, he saved me. Like he's the one who brought me to himself and you must respond personally. Theology that doesn't result in faithful doxology reveals idolatry. Theology, beliefs about God, that doesn't result in faithful doxology, worship of God, Reveals idolatry. You worship false gods. Theology that doesn't result in faithful doxology reveals idolatry. You're worshiping a false god if you've got a head this big around with doctrine, but your heart is cold. That's idolatry. True doctrine leads to new affections for God. To grateful hearts that explode in praise. Now you can do it in your own personality type, your own cultural expression. But you ought to believe true things about God, and that ought to lead to affections and love for God, that your heart is exploding, however you might express that externally. You can have the pristine theology of Calvin and still be dead in your sins. So how accurate is your theology? How active is your heart? How much is your theology leading to love of God, love of neighbor, gratefulness for his saving work? The one true God must become your God. So let us not become more pious than the Bible is. 
Personal pronouns are required. <laughs> you must respond to this work. It's good to respond and exalt God as the hero. But you just do that personally. Also notice that he said, he's my father's God, I will exalt him. Now he's talking about the promise to Abraham that God had made, the covenant promise. So God has kept his faithful promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And at this point he's saying, no, it's my father's God. But children, kids, let me talk to you for a second. You must make a personal decision to believe in this God. Your parents believing this God doesn't mean you're saved. Your parents' God, you should conclude, is the one true God. And this God's grace and mercy and kindness is available. But you must believe. You must say, my parents' God is my God. He is my salvation. He is my hope. But also notice the, verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. As we exalt God in song, as we do it personally, we must make sure we're exalting him as he's revealed himself, not as we make him up to be. So again, theology that doesn't result in faithful doxology reveals idolatry. Bad theology can lead to very passionate, very emotional, very sincere, very unfaithful doxology. So if you don't have right beliefs about God, but you're super passionate and expressive in your songs, you're worshiping a false god. You might be worshiping the experience of singing, not the God you say you're singing to. So we must have both. We've got to have right theology and faithful doxology. It's because of who he is, it leads us to sing forth to this God. But notice throughout Scripture, this is important. We must understand and know who he is according to who he's revealed himself. So is God is love, Right? So we know that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and 16. God is a strong tower. He's our refuge and strength. He's a father to the fatherless, a protector of widows. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh is his name. So he's saying, no, this, this Lord, this Yahweh, remember this, uh, what we've been unpacking in Exodus. So when he revealed himself to Moses, he said, no, no, I am the great I am. I'm going to show you who I am by what I'm about to do to Egypt. Pharaoh's like, who is Yahweh that I should worship him? The plagues show, and climactically, the deliverance, the exodus shows uh, um, Egypt and Pharaoh who Yahweh is. He's the one true God. He's love. He's a refuge in strength. He's merciful and slow to anger, but he's also a warrior. Yeah. Our God is a warrior. If you don't have room in your theology for God being warrior, you don't worship the God of the Bible. This is what the scripture, he's revealed himself. It's not all he's revealed himself as, but that's a part of who he's revealed himself as. He is a warrior. And we see this even when we get in just a minute to his justice, that he's going to go forth and he's going to smash his enemies. You must know and understand this if you worship the, the true God who's revealed himself in his word. The songs we sing must be filtered through the word that we read. If we're going to sing, we must be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Songs that we're singing like, let me, let me examine the scriptures daily to see if these songs and what they're singing teach me the same things the scriptures So, If so, I sing them with great joy. If not, let's get rid of them. We sing because of who God has revealed himself. We sing to exalt his victory. Secondly, we sing, and this connects to him as warrior, to exalt his holy justice. We sing to exalt God's holy justice. Justice. Weeks like the last few weeks inflame our desire for justice. I don't have to convince anybody in this room today that there is gross and wicked injustice in the world. 
I don't have to convince anybody in this room today that somewhere inside of you, even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, super glad you're here, grateful you're here, but I just want you to pay attention to the fact that even if you're not a Christian, you see wicked things in the world and you say, I want justice. Why? What is that inside of you that wants justice? You're made in the image of God. And God is a God of holy justice. And so when you see injustice, particularly against other image bearers, inside of you there should be a righteous anger or an indignation that says this is not right and someone should do something about it. When a racist kills a bunch of people in Buffalo, New York, you should be angry with a righteous anger. When an 18-year-old teenager kills kids, you should feel some kind of way about that. That's evil. That's demonic. That's wicked. Justice alone, when, a, when a, uh, the, the SBC comes out, with the, the Sexual uh, Abuse Task Force releases their findings, and you find out there have been pastors in people positions sexually abusing people, you, that should make you angry. There should be a righteous indignation that says, God, make it stop and bring justice to all this wickedness. God's holy justice is another reason we should praise him. This is a reason we should sing, God, we know that you're a God of holy justice. And so we worship you. I want you to notice, look at, again, we'll read 4 through 12. But I want you to notice when we get to verse 9, the arrogant injustice of Pharaoh in Egypt that continued as they pursued after God's people. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. But look at Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Notice the arrogant injustice, again, that continued from Pharaoh and Egypt. And I want you to think again about your desires for justice. And let's think about what God has done throughout this Exodus narrative in the, the prose, but now uh, highlighted in this poetry. Chapter 1, an earlier Pharaoh, what was he concerned about? These people, Israel, these sojourners, these exiles, they're growing too much in number. I need that to stop because they might get so big that they join with our enemies as allies and fight against us. And what was his plan? Kill all the baby boys. So first he told uh, Shipra and Pua to kill them on the birthing stool. When that didn't work, what did he say to do? Cast all the babies into the Red Sea, into the water. And where is Pharaoh in Egypt's grave? The Red Sea in the water. So God had told him, you're going to let Israel, my son, go. Pharaoh and Egypt are throwing baby boys into the water. And God's justice says, I will drown you in the water. You've been drowning, my son. So this is holy justice. There was a rightness. So we can read this sometimes and think, man, God seems a little too, like, mean right here. He's like, they were killing babies. Do you not think the man in Texas deserves justice for killing babies? In this moment, God is demonstrating a holy justice. Did you notice it says he consumes them like stubble? What's that word make you think of in Exodus? Man, they were in slavery 400 years. 
making bricks out of stubble. God's holy justice is on display. This wickedness, this evil that had gone on for 400 plus years and involved the worst, most ugly injustices, God is demonstrating a holy justice. And I say holy justice because, again, look at verse 11 and 12. Now, the ESV puts these in two different stanzas. So ESV almost wanted me to do like point two and then point three, but I'm like, "Mm -mm, I want holy justice together. Because there's justice, but then there's holiness. But then if you look at verse 12, we see the justice again. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So I want you to see that God's justice is not any old justice. It's a holy justice. What does the word holy mean? It just means to be set apart. That there's no one else like God. There's no other justice like God's justice. Now, why is this relevant? Now, why is this important? And I want you to even notice this. There's a flex here going on. His nostrils. It says, basically, he was like so angry. You know, some of you get angry and you're like. (sighs) It's like his justice did that to his nostrils and it blew the Red Sea in half. So there's language here. There's poetry letting you know his power is unlike any other. It's holy. Set apart. He's going to bring forth justice by drowning him in the sea where the babies were drowned. He's going to bring forth justice, crush them like stubble, like the stubble that he was enslaving uh, Israel with. But also I want you to see this holiness is that he's got the right kind of power, but he also has the right kind of character to bring perfect justice. Who is like you among the lords, O God? No one. That's been the question of the whole book. Who is like Yahweh? No one. (laughs) Only you are holy enough to be able to bring forth justice and it not be sinful. We're too weak and sinful to do that. Like we sin in our righteous anger. It goes from righteous anger to sinful anger real quick. And suddenly now we're sinning in response to the sin we see and now we're not bringing forth justice because we're sinning as we do it. Only God has the character and the power to execute perfect justice in this world. So, friends, it's right to feel righteous indignation. It's right to want sex offenders brought to justice. It's right to want survivors validated and protected. It's right to want mass shootings to stop. And we should do all that we can to help to that end. And listen, we may disagree on the the best solution to do that, but let us be united in our desire to bring forth justice. So we may disagree as Christians on the best way and strategy to get after it, But may we all long for justice. Complex problems rarely have simple solutions. Complex problems rarely have simple solutions. So don't be silly like you know how to fix the whole broken world. (laughs) Don't engage like that, all right? Complex problems rarely have simple solutions. But may we seek with all that we can to live forth and pray and ask God. And let us remember, we're too weak and sinful to execute perfect justice. But it's coming. Perfect justice is coming. And this is where, as the people of God on this side of the cross of Christ, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So in Greek, the word never means never. (laughs) Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as you feel all this righteous indignation, 
Remember, the Lord says, it's my holy justice that's needed, not yours. You're also sinful. (laughs) I'm also sinful. He's not sinful. His justice is perfect justice. He's got the character, the strength, and he will do it. Wrath is coming. Judgment day is coming. And the man in Texas, the man in New York, if there wasn't repentance and faith in Christ, they're facing judgment even now. Those those ones have died and, and, and will on judgment day. So vengeance is coming, wrath is coming, justice is coming. For the Christian, we should sing because our God's holy justice will come. We know that. And so we can trust even when the world's broken, even when we're hurt, even when we're confused, even when we don't know what to do, even when there's complex problems and disagreements on what to do, we know vengeance belongs to the Lord. Justice is coming. Thirdly, we sing to exalt his sovereign guidance. So we sing to exalt his victory. We sing to exalt his holy justice. We also sing to exalt his sovereign guidance. Look at verse uh, 13 through 18. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have ceased the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you've purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now I want to point out something uh, scholars uh, would point out and use some language here just to help you understand what's going on. That this is written in some scholars would call in prophetic um, perfect tense. So he's talking about the future as if it's already happened. Because with God... He's all places at all times. He's not like showing up to the future. We're like, oh, snap, I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> it's like, no, no, he knows all things and all times and all places. He's omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. Like he is there in the future already now. So he's speaking in such a way that he's saying, no, no, you see how I've delivered you. You see how I've saved you. And this is what I'm going to do in the future. Here's how I'm going to protect you. And we're going to look back at some point and show this is what I did. So I, I set you free from Egypt And then I sent you through all these nations and took you to the promised land. If you want to read about that, read the book of Joshua. And he's saying, but I'm saying it as if it's already done. Because in God's sovereignty and in his guidance, it is already done. It's as good as done. If he said it, he'll do it. He will keep his promises. That's why we sing, great is your faithfulness. You will keep your promises throughout generations. You are faithful. And in fact, this is true. Psalm 106, verse 9, looking back on what God did. He rebuked the sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Now notice this order the psalmist gives us. They were saved. Then they believed. And in believing, they sang. They got set free, and it's like, oh, my goodness, you set us free. We believe your words. We believe your promises. You've been with us. You've guided us to this point. Even when we were complaining, even when we didn't understand it, you did it. You delivered us. You set us free. We believe your word, and we're going to sing. He was faithful to lead them through the wilderness. Again, read Joshua. He was faithful to take them to the holy mountain, first Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He was faithful to protect them from their enemies as he continued to be a man of war against injustice and idolatry and wickedness throughout all these lands. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. 
In Christ, he has climactically delivered us from our three great enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And he will lead us through the wilderness of this broken world as sojourners and exiles. He will protect us from those enemies. Sin can no longer condemn us to hell, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. He will protect us from Satan. Satan can attack us, but he can't have us. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He can attack, you resist him, you submit to God, he must flee from you. Death will usher us into God's glorious presence. No longer an enemy we're afraid of like our sister Gretel. Instead, flip with me or scroll with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses and don't be ashamed to look at the table of contents and figure out where to turn, where 1 Corinthians is. I want you to know, when I first started walking with God in college, anytime somebody said turn somewhere, table of contents was always where I was turning because I had no idea where to turn. So go there, but then the big chapters are numbers, the little uh, uh, big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of that future day and how we can now view death in light of that future day. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death now is a friend that ushers us into the presence of glory and of our great Savior. So he will guard us. He will protect us from our enemies. He will take us to the new Jerusalem. We will live forever with our king where there's no more mass shootings, where there's no more racism, where there are no more tears, where there's no more cancer, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more death, where there's no more car wrecks, where there's no more songs associated with dead friends. To that place where we're living with our God in the new heaven because of the Mount of Calvary, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, our God's people, a God with his people as the king of Christ has brought us together in the new Jerusalem. That's where we're going. Saved people sing. And that's what we'll be doing in glory. That's not all we'll be doing, but we'll be, we'll be singing. Holy, 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 worthy is the lamb who was slain. All glory, all honor, all blessing, all praise. Saved people sing. That's what we'll do forever. This is our God. Saved people sing. We sing things like, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. He'll never let me down. Great is your faithfulness to me. We sing things like, no more am I a slave to sin, but bought with a price, redemption that was purchased through the blessed cross. I am guilty, but pardoned. By grace, I've been set free. I'm ransomed through the blood you shed for me. I was dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. I'm reconciled through mercy. To the cross, I cling. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in you plead my acceptance. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Can you imagine the millions of Israelites singing this song? What that sounded like? Can you imagine 
in the new heavens and new earth, every tribe, tongue, and nations, millions upon millions, singing out, our God has saved us. Whoo, forever he reigns. Forever he reigns. Forever we will sing. And to conclude with one note about how we sing. Lastly, we sing to exalt him together. We sing to exalt him together. Look at verse 19 to 21 again. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Summarizes what has happened. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang with them, Sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Aaron's sister, singing. And as you notice, the words she sings are the opening words of the song in verse 1. So probably what's going on, she's a prophetess, so she speaks the truth of God. In this, in this moment, probably what she's doing, there's probably a call and response song. So the men have sang, and now the women are singing the exact same song. And what is God showing us right here? Just like in the opening chapters, we had Shifra and Pua. We had Miriam might have been the one who uh, was the sister that was watching when Moses got thrown to the water and Pharaoh's daughter took her out and she took him back to Moses' mom. That, that was probably Miriam, or at least possibly Miriam. And we see in this even Pharaoh's daughter. So from the opening pages of Exodus all the way to this moment, God is demonstrating, hey, I don't prioritize men over women. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who understands the saving work of God sings. And so there's this call and response. It's not just Moses and Aaron and the elders. It's everyone. Everyone must sing. Everybody who's been saved must sing. Save people sing. That's what we do. When you understand what God has done, you respond. And so there's a, there's a beauty right here that all Israel must sing. Every man, woman, boy, and girl has been saved must sing. I just want to say a few things just about King's Cross and how and we think about singing, even in light of these great realities. Our dream and our prayer, and we've been trusting God to be a multi-ethnic and multi-generational church. Well, if you're multi-ethnic and multi-generational, what that means is you're going to be multicultural. So there's going to be a collision of different cultures. So I went through my list of songs that have meant something to me. I could have done a hundred more easily. You have songs like that. And you have them in your own cultural expressions from your own background, and they mean something to you. Now what that means is then people can divide and get frustrated and want only their own particular expression of songs. So here's a, a few things that I just want you to know we prioritize in thinking about how we sing together. Number one, the congregation's voice is the most important instrument in the room. So as we have conversations, as we're thinking about singing songs, we're trying to sing songs that sing true things about God, right theology, that leads to faithful doxology, faithful worship, in such a way that the congregation can sing loudly. And Jonathan and the rest of the band is working hard to make sure there's enough pauses and moments where the music is quiet enough to where we make sure the voices are heard. And there are certain songs every week that we're going to say, yo, make it real mere, not, not, not many instruments going. We just need to hear the voices. But we want, so literally as we're thinking about songs, as Jonathan's thinking about how to lead the band and how we sing, he's making sure it's making everyone sing loudly. Because the congregation's voice is the most important instrument in the room. Together we testify in song, God saved me. Holy, holy, holy 
His holy justice is worth singing about. His great victory is worth singing about. His sovereign guidance over us all the way to glory is worth singing about. But we must do this together. Now, again, as we do this theocentrically and personally, you need to know that we're also united in content. And then in this combination of sometimes being comfortable and sometimes being uncomfortable. This is what I mean. We're singing true things about God. We're united. Sometimes the song is in our cultural expression the way we're used to hearing it sang, and we're comfortable. Sometimes it's a song we we may not know, or it's sung in a different way, and we're uncomfortable, and we're united in that, or at least we're seeking to be united in that experience. Our unity is around what we're saying, and we're happily uncomfortable when we're uncomfortable because we're united across ethnicities and generations singing true things about God understanding there are people in the room that certain songs hit different for them. (laughs) Certain songs connect with certain experiences. And so we sing praises to God, even if we don't like the cultural preference of that particular song because of the truth. And we know our brother, sister is singing their heart out too. So we're united, willing to be comfortable and happily uncomfortable. And we should be united in passionate gratitude. You should feel something when you sing. And if you don't, that's okay. We're in a broken world. We're broken people. But ask the Lord, Lord, move my heart. Move my affections. You should feel something. You don't have to dance with tambourines, but you should feel free to. It's biblical. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Like, look, it's in the Bible. So you got a tambourine, you want to bring it? Get after it. (laughs) Like, this is in the scriptures, right? You should feel something. You should respond in song. You know, one of the things that I'm so grateful that the African-American church has taught me is there ought to be an emotional response to singing these glorious truths. And sometimes you wonder, why is that? Well, African-Americans have a history of knowing what it's like to be enslaved and to be set free. They know that when you're set free, you sing, and that joint's got to be expressed. (laughs) That's not something you can just keep in. So there's different cultures that teach us different things about how to sing the same praises to the same God because of the same glorious truths. Christians, we've all been set free. Let us learn from our African-American brothers and sisters. To express that. Now, again, you might be like, look, I express it in quiet reverence before the Lord. Praise God. As long as you're feeling something, praise God. (laughs) Like, I'm not asking you to jump and shout and be phony. Don't do that. But you ought to feel something. And you express that if you're super introverted, super quiet. You Praise God. As long as your heart is moved as you sing praises, as long as your heart is not judging people who express it differently. But instead, you say we're expressing the same truths of God for the glory of God. And that brings us joy. You know, a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal, I talked about the power of grateful meals and special moments over meals. We also sing grateful songs. We always have reasons to sing. Justice and mercy, gospel, cross. Christ died, he resurrected, he saved sinners. Repent and believe, have joy. And you should sing because of that. You know, Israel should sing and we should sing. We've been set free, Israel's set free. You know, I'm not the only one making those connections. Again, I want to make sure you guys read the Bible the way the Bible teaches you to read the Bible. Revelation chapter 15, John gets the vision of glory. What's going on in glory? And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, reminded you of the Red Sea, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass, just like Israel was standing by the Red Sea, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Save people. Sing. We sing things like, by his stripes we are healed. By his nail-pierced hands we're free. By his blood we're washed clean. Now we have his victory. We exalt in his victory. The power of sin is broken. We exalt in his holy justice to conquer sin through pouring out his wrath on the cross so that he might pour out his mercy on sinners. Jesus overcame it all. He's won our freedom. Jesus has won it all. Hallelujah, you have won the victory. Hallelujah, you won it all for me. We did nothing. He did it all. So that's not like you won it all for me. You did it all for me because I'm the most important. That's not, what, that's not what the song is saying. You won it all for me and you did all of it. It's your finished work. You did it all for me. I did nothing. Death could not hold you down. You are the risen king, seated in majesty, sovereignly guiding us to glory. We should sing. Let me pray so we can do it. Father, thank you for your grace.